do come to our last sermon in the book of Revelation, I want to note for you that the revelation of Jesus Christ contained here in this book, the revelation to John, it is closing in the same way that it opened. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, I read for you, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which we began, I think I was just informed just a minute ago, uh, 77 weeks ago, uh, we, we, we were here, believe it or not, if you recall. It opens up this way, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants. This is important. This is how it began. It opens and it closes the same way. This is functioning like bookends. To show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written within it. For the time is near. If you're there in Revelation 22, then it opens this way, verse 6, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So here is the same beginning to close out the book as it launched and opened at its original point. And yet, remember, quite naturally, when you see throughout the book, the time is near. You saw that at the beginning. I just read for you. Keep it, hold it, guard it, obey it. The time is near. And then afterward, here it is. Here are the servants. Blessed are they who... Keep it, for the time is near. And we began asking ourselves, as many do when they handle the book of Revelation, when is nearness? What do you mean by the time is near? So is this a message this morning on the end of the world? Here it is, right? It's a, it, the time is near. And then we all get out our very, 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 very bad calculations. And then we, then we read into modern events and we begin to assign the Lord's return and all of the major players. And we do so through the media and through the news headlines. And we all recognize that wasn't the point. And Jesus instructed his apostles to not be asking when, but rather consume in your mind the thought of why. Why is the Lord returning this way? Why is redemptive history set up in working out his plan in history the way he is describing it? Why is the concern of the servant to explore what it is the Lord is doing, not to sit and contemplate what might take place and who might be the lead character in its beginning. This is the concern of the servant. The answer for why the Lord is returning this way and when He will return, why it will go down the way that it will is because of this. He is reclaiming the earth for His glory. That's why. That's why. That's why he is returning. That's what will take place when he does return. He will reclaim the earth for his glory. 
Look in chapter 22 as you just notice that that's what they describe right here in verse 12 and 13. Here is the Lord Jesus. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the alpha beginner and I am the omega that is the consummator. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. But then maybe we ask, so he is coming to bring his recompense. He is setting this kind of crooked earth from the fall. He is reshaping it according to his glorious intention of consummate glory. Where all that is imperfect will be made in a moment at the Lord's return. Judicially perfect. And then maybe we struggle, don't we? And we say, why delay? If these grand themes of redemptive history are to occur at the Lord's return, why delay? Have you ever wrestled with that? At the point of the resurrection historically, why didn't he just at that moment bring consummate glory? Death has been defeated. He has been raised. He is the king above all kings. Institute the consummation of the age right there. Why this ascension and the church age? And why are we striving and struggling? Why not come now? And it is Peter who gives insight into that concern for ourselves. Let me read for you the Apostle Peter. You don't need to turn there. I'll simply read it. Just here. If you've asked, maybe you've struggled with, why delay? You're not the first one to wrestle with that question. Listen to Peter as he writes. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires. Is he saying this to you? Know this. Following their own sinful desires. They will say, this is what they'll say as you struggle. Why not come now? Why delay? They will say, where is the promise of His coming? Where is it? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. Where is He? Look at your life. You're putting your eggs in this basket. Where is He? Guess what? Tomorrow's going to happen just like it happened today. Scoffers will come scoffing. Where is the promise of His return? And the Christian wrestles. Why delay? And then we hear a gracious word from the Lord about the delay. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Don't assume it. Don't overlook it. That with the Lord, one day, is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. Don't overlook that, he says. Don't assume it. Don't hide from it. Don't overlook it. Own it. 
But why? Why the delay? Why, why this day is as a thousand years? This sense of reorienting your heart about nearness, imminency. Where is he? About your heart, he goes forward. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. As some count slowness. But he is, here's a principle. He is patient toward you. You mean, you mean this delay where he will come with his recompense and he will give to each one as they deserve. This delay, we struggle and say, why delay? And he says, he is patient toward you. What does this patience look like? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There's the delay. The extension of His grace through the call of the gospel. For it indeed is the work of our King that not any subject of His kingdom would perish. He is a God who is patient. This is the heartbeat of the delayed, His sovereign kindness, mercy, and extended patience through the church as they witness to his gospel. This is the kindness of the Lord. And the Christian can, without a biblical orientation, can wax hard under the delay. Why not do this? He says, he is patient. And the gospel of grace is going forward, and many hearts are being changed. Lives transformed because of his kindness and patience. So Peter would say to you this morning, don't overlook that. Don't overlook his kindness. Yet I say all of that to you, and after going through 22 chapters of what are very intense images, are they not? Some of you have not been with us through the 22 chapters, but indeed you've seen some really bad portrayal of them somewhere, or you have read them and been confused, frightened, or both by them. They are a bit intense, aren't they? And as we work through them, I want to ask you, as we conclude our time together by working through them, is this, have doubts ever crept into your mind as to the return of the Lord? In your life, as you live it, as you're seeking to prioritize it, as you're trying to gauge where you'll invest it, and then some of the struggles that come with that, have you ever doubted the Lord's return? After hearing all of these images, maybe you hear the same scoffers who come scoffing, or maybe you hear it within your own heart at times in moments of great doubt. Do you remember that's not new either? Way back 66 canonical books ago in Genesis, that was present there too. Do you remember the serpent that is Satan who emerges in the first scene to our four parents, Adam and Eve? 
this comment. Did God really say that? Did he really? And, and, and here you are, the Christian, learning Revelation, working through all of these images, and then looking at your life and trying to connect, and then maybe you've thought, ooh, I, I, I don't know. And then the subtlety combining with the mockery of the scoffers who keep on scoffing and in your own heart through difficulty, and maybe you hear the sarcasm of, did God really say Or maybe it continues for you yet another approach. You will not surely die. Right? Here is the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord to Adam and Eve. And here is the constant heart's trauma and difficulty. Did he really say that? You won't really die. Perhaps he approaches you less directly. Or your own heart has trouble hearing words like this. You're more sophisticated in your thinking than that book. Don't get all wrapped up into this kind of weird, rigid, literal, bumpkin kind of theology. Don't be a Bible thumper. You, 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 all of you, right? You're more sophisticated than that. Really? You're more suave, educated, right? We prize education as a culture. Everyone who's educated realizes truth from error. That somehow is an educational mark. You're discerning. You're sophisticated. Ultimately, you, each of you, don't hear. Did God really say that? You are more intelligent than this. These images, these stories, these wild apocalyptic visions, don't get bogged down in that. You're more intelligent than that, aren't you? Did God really say that? Perhaps it is, as we've wrestled with some of these images, Satan would perhaps approach and say, Really? Beasts? Dragons, prostitutes, really? Come on, do you really say that? So the angel, knowing that perhaps your heart, my heart, the church who hears this prophecy read aloud, if there were a strain within your heart, to embrace the book of Revelation is your spiritual strength in going forward, in your high-definition worldview. The angel says this in verse 6 of chapter 22, where I want to begin with you this morning. He comes to you and to me this morning to say, John, tell the servants, verse 6, these words are trustworthy and they are true. Right? You, you just came out of this spinning tornado of dragons, prostitutes, seafaring shipmen, apocalyptic explosion. You've seen these, the horses that look like scorpions and you've had all the images in your heads. And he says, John, tell the servants, 
these words, they're true. And they're trustworthy. You are putting your eggs in the right basket. I want to look at you, uh, with you then for the next couple of moments about how the angel describes to John who the servants are exactly. Who is a servant? So it is, if you look there in verse 6 and uh, 7 where he is committing this to you this morning, to the servants, these trustworthy and true words, the Lord, the God of the Spirit of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. I want to look at three parts of what is a servant. This is the way the book is concluding, the way that it began, describing the servants regarding the word of the Lord. Number one, what is, this is what we are exploring, what is a servant? So that each one of us would consider this apocalyptic book, all that's been taught to us, and we'd recognize our own role in hearing the word of the Lord and obeying it. So who is a servant according to this book? Verse 7, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You could look quite plainly and see who is a servant according to that. Who is the servant that the angel is speaking to through John? Who is it? It's the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. That's the mark of the servant. That's you. That's me. That's the community. Who are the servants? Those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. That's the mark of a servant. Look at verse, beyond verse 7 into verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant. He's describing a servant now. I am like you. You, like me, don't worship me. We're fellow servants. What is the description further as he himself describes himself as a fellow servant? I'm like a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who, look at the mark of the servant yet again, who keep the words of this book. This is the mark of the servant. This is each one of you that ascribe by faith to the contents of this book, you then, in your confession, follow likewise in your action. You keep the words of the book. But yet, quite naturally, the question then arises, doesn't it? What does it mean to keep the words of the book? What does that mean exactly? I mean, if I am a Christian, by confession, I have placed my faith in Christ as he who atoned for me. That is, I am guilty. I have seen Christ who was perfect and without blemish and not guilty before the law of God, who lived a perfect life, both God and man, in the flesh, and he took my guilt, put it upon him, and then he bore my cross and wrath for me. And then suffering my punishment, he then rose three days later is the historical Christian faith, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He then was raised and he was raised, the Bible tells us, for our justification, no longer declared guilty, but declared righteous is the testimony of the gospel for all who 
believe. They're the servants. And then being servants, they follow through with service. They keep the words of the prophecy of this book. So yet again, I ask you, what does it mean then as a servant, one who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, I belong to him. What does it mean for me then to keep the words of this book? The answer is quite straightforward. Look at the passage. It describes it for us right there in verse 10 and 11. This is what it means to keep the words of the book. He said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Don't seal them up. Don't throw them away. Don't hide them. Don't lock them. For the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil. And the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous, that is the servants, let the righteous still do right. And the holy still be holy. That's what it means to keep the words of this book. Doing right. Not vaguely, not not in your own internal compass. Doing right according to what? Doing right according to this book. So I don't respond simply by gazing out and thinking, how do I feel about this situation ethically? How do I feel about it? That doesn't exactly matter much. How do I do right in this situation as defined for me in the word of God? That is the mark of the servant. Doing right based on whose standard of rightness? God's standard of of rightness. Where do I find God's standard of rightness? Where he has declared it in his word. This is what it means to keep the prophecies of this book. Do right as explained by this book. I have four factors I want to take a moment with you to explore about this idea of being a servant. Four factors of Christian obedience. Okay, so I've kind of laid for you the groundwork of this is the mark of the servant, one who keeps the prophecies of this book. I've located for it, that is, doing right as expressed in this book. So that's the concept of Christian obedience. One who is a servant, and how do you become a servant? But by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a Christian, then, there is the concept of following through in a life of obedience. That is, looking as a servant unto the word of the Lord, growing in it, learning it, applying it, being a part of a community that prizes it, and then having my life transformed by it. Okay, so that's Christian obedience. And there's four factors to that from this text I want to explore with you. Number one is the concept of of obedience, the concept of Christian obedience. What do we mean by the concept of Christian obedience? And it is this, and this is uh, uh, quite straightforward and easy, but I do share with you, I think that we would connect very well, that it's not easy in application. The concept of Christian obedience. Let me outline that for you, for the servant. That is the servant who is described here. He keeps the prophecies of this book. He's obedient to it. So the concept of Christian obedience is for the servant, right and wrong are convincingly expressed in the Word of God. Convincingly expressed in the Word of God. The concept of doing right and avoiding that which is wrong, that is sin, 
There is categories in the earth of right and wrong. They are defined for me as a servant within the word of God. And it is convincingly so. There are consequences to the concept of Christian obedience, are there not? If you receive with me that that is reality, right and wrong, expressed in the Word of God, and as a servant, you've seen it expressed to you in the Word of God, and you've sought to obey it, you've sought to follow that ethically, maritally, through your entrepreneur enterprises, through raising your children, you have looked at this text and you've seen right and wrong and you've sought to obey it. There are challenges that come with that, are there not? When you say, I am convinced, this binds my conscience. I would suggest to you, number one, that there is a challenge of being quite simply in our modern culture, in our current culture, that is, you would be mis- widely misunderstood and misrepresented. Does that fall on deaf ears? Have you ever turned on the TV before? We hate everyone. We're unloving. We're judgmental. And if you don't look as good as I look, you're out. Right, right, that, that's mockery, right? But the bar is set that way. Why? Did, where does that even come from? Because there is a sense of humble orthodoxy. And, and as we embrace orthodoxy, what is taught in Scripture, oftentimes it might not come across very humbly. Yet even when it is humbly expressed, you're maligned and misunderstood. I was in a conversation once with someone over the biblical concept of heaven and hell, life eternal. Is there or isn't there? And what takes place uh, in either orbit? I engaged in a discussion with someone uh, for quite a portion of time. And at the end, what we did is one of us was appealing to the text of Scripture. And I'm not putting myself up as like the only person who reads the Bible whatsoever. I'm talking about an isolated situation to give an illustration to what I'm talking about. One of us is appealing to the text of Scripture. Another one is saying at the end, at the end, like our discussion was, you know, this long. And at the end is simply this. There's something wrong with you. Because you would take pleasure in somebody going to hell. Okay, so there is something wrong with me. If that were the case. But how is that being representative? Me or you? Anyone who is orthodox in handling the text of Scripture? It is because you, as a servant, are convinced of what is being taught in Scripture. Well, then I'm going to mischaracterize you and attack you. So there are awkwardnesses, burdens, and consequences that come with being a servant. Someone who is, quite simply, convinced that God's word is to be obeyed. Consider also there is a loss of influence, perhaps at work, within family, friendships, they come to bear the burden of living as a servant. One who believes in the concept of Christian obedience that God's word describes right and wrong, and I am convincingly believing in God's word 
and applying it to my life. The second factor of Christian obedience is its importance. Look in verse 15 and 16. That is at the end of verse um, uh, end of verse 11, it says, let the righteous still do right, as we've described now, and the holy still be holy. And then look in verse 15 and 16. Do you see the first word there in verse 15? Outside. This is the importance of obedience. Verse 15, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters. And everyone who loves and practices falsehood, I Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. That is, for the community that describes themselves as being servants. I have written these things within here for you. It's important that you hear them and do them. Hear the word of the Lord. I wrote these things for the churches. And everyone who looks upon this testimony and disregards it is also disregarded. They are outside the city. Do you remember our conclusions about what is the city? It's the redeemed community, the people of God. It's the servants. And everyone who doesn't obey the word of the Lord disregards it. And the way that you know you're disregarding it is your life is marked by this This sorcery back in the first century, this sexual immorality, murder, hatred, idolatry, every form of falsehood. You practice it. It's integral to your life. Then you're outside the city. You're not to be regarded as a servant. The redeemed community will continue with the word of the Lord in recognizing the importance of keeping the prophecies of this book. Beyond importance and the concept of Christian obedience is the activity of obedience itself. Look at verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. This is the activity of obedience. It is a life lived by grace. Strengthened and encouraged by the grace of the Lord. What I just outlined for you isn't a new pathway of legalism for you. Consider and let it rest upon you that as a servant, it can be overwhelming, can't it? In all of those discussions you have with other people you want to show yourself loving kind and humble yet there is a sense as a servant you're committed to truth and its absoluteness according to the word of the lord so then you have this incredible uh tight rope to walk in the conversation and it's challenging and you love that person and you want to continue the dialogue with them because it, it can be perceived like you're judging them and you don't love them, you don't care about them and that's not where you want to be yet your heart is bound as a servant to the word of the Lord. I don't love you if I don't speak plainly. I don't love you anymore if I just keep lies upon you. I don't care at all for you yet you recognize my caring can be misconstrued as hateful 
So you're in this difficult way trying to love and care and show empathy, concern, and compassion. Yet as a servant, bound by the truth of another, not to rewrite the script according to your own emotions, that is a challenging place. And then you think about your marriage and you think about you love your wife and you have this relationship, you care for her, and there's challenges. And then there's challenges at the workplace and there's ethical dilemmas. There's a lot in this age that are incredibly difficult. And it can feel overwhelming. We talked last week about moms as being overloaded, challenges, pressures that they face. We'll just roll that into application this week. All of us, same challenge. And how does the word of the Lord conclude? After 66 canonical books, we go from Genesis and we hear all of the doctrine of drama, the drama of doctrine rather, all the way across and the very last note on the keyboard is, the very last note is a word of grace. Praise the Lord. That's the last word. Aren't you as a writer supposed to leave your most convincing statement right at the end? Get him in the introduction, Adam and Eve. Nail him at the conclusion. May the grace of the Lord be with you all. Beautifully written, isn't it? It's a bit better than the case, sirrah, sirrah, good night. Do you remember? Probably not. Good night and good luck. <laughs> what if the word of the Lord ended that way? Well, that's just the way it is. You're like, well, that, that's not very good. You read the drama of doctrine, and he ends with good night and good luck. Or the cult following that we've all adopted at some point in our lives, or we've texted, or we've made jest, and we've made comment, and that is the most corniest statement ever now. May the force be with you. The vague idea of just some sort of internal component or external component that will merge together and somehow give you a guiding light forward. Good luck. May it be with you. So it is much more definitive. Our Lord, as He speaks, the life of a servant is challenging. It's difficult. It's one that's lived by faith and must constantly be soaked with the word of grace. May the grace of the Lord be with you. This is the activity of obedience. It is an activity of grace. Last portion of exploration for Christian obedience is position, and this is critical. Please follow along. Please follow along at this. This is critical about the way we obey the position of Christian obedience. Look with me at verse 11. You have to notice this sequence. It's critical. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy. Please notice the sequence. The righteous still do right, and the holy still do holy. Okay, did you notice the position, the sequence? You don't become holy. You can't read this text backwards. You cannot perform holiness 
in order to gain holiness. This is, the, this is the position of Christian obedience. It flows from grace and position. You don't gain position with God by performing duties. You can't this morning, if you felt before the Lord, I am undone and unholy. You cannot read this text backwards and say, therefore, I'm going to strive to do and perform holiness. No, can, neither can you say, I am unrighteous before him. I'm not hidden in Christ. Therefore, I'm going to read the text backwards again. I'm going to do acts of righteousness in order to be counted as righteous. It can't be performed that way. It can't be achieved. Christian obedience, true obedience before the Lord, is from the position of being made righteous and by that same grace performing right deeds. Christian holiness, a life that continues to be sanctified by the word of the Lord, is one that was sanctified by the grace of the Lord in the Lord himself. This is the sequence of obedience. Please don't read it backwards. It can't be done. The word of the Lord here is not a covenant of works. It doesn't come to you and say, do this and live. It's not saying that. I, I, I trust you appreciate that. It is saying this rather in Christ. It's saying, be this, be alive, live, and you will do this. You were made alive first and obedience came second. He empowers. He gives grace. He is the source, the root system. It is be alive. And how do you become alive? How is it that you become righteous? How is it that you become holy and then live a holy life and then follow through with rightness? How is it? Look in verse 14. The text is very clear. Blessed are those. Here's the servant community. Those who are doing right. They have washed their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. This is the Christian community. Those in this portrait of faith who have washed their robes in the blood of Christ. It's a portrait of faith. Blessed are they who have turned to Christ. They are the servants. They have new robes on. Blood-washed linens. The book has given us that image again and again and again. This is the believing community. These are the ones who have been made alive, and so they continue in a life of living. They have come unto Christ and received white-washed robes in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are declared before the Father, holy and righteous. And then guess what those holy and righteous ones do? Continue in a life, strengthened by grace, in holiness and righteousness. Where do I find what's holy and right? Contained in the word of the Lord. This is who a servant is. One who keeps the word of the Lord.
Secondly, I have to show you here from the text, the servant second is not just that he keeps the words of the prophecy of this book, but he is one right there, very clearly outlined for you the very last two words of verse 9. He is one who worships God. This is the mark of servant. The people of God, since the very beginning, continuing on into the church, are those who have been marked by God-centered worship. Do you remember as the Lord spoke to Israel after he redeemed them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Do you remember that great act of redemption in the Old Testament? God bringing Israel through Egypt right through the waters and then he says this to them, this is what I have done in you. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the one who brought you out of the house of slavery. Therefore, since I have redeemed you, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make for yourself a carved image. Don't bow down to it and do not serve it. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God. I think it's quite clear that we're not carving up images and necessarily bowing down to them and serving them, but you recognize the heart. Idolatry is still well alive with us. And the mark of a servant is one who seeks to eliminate it by grace and serve God only. The outsiders, those who are not marked by being servants, they were described in the book of Revelation as well. Chapter 13, verse 4. Guess who the outsiders, those who are not a part of the redeemed community, guess what they do? They worship the beast. You see, there's always a life of worship being lived. Always. You either worship yourself, and you're like, I would never do that. There's a million ways to do that. And you worship yourself in the avenues of pleasure that you seek and hedonism and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or you pursue financial endeavors at great risk that make no sense because you're greedy and seeking profit. However it comes, and it can come in a really small dose, and it can come in an overwhelming shipwreck kind of dose. But either way, a life of worship is always being lived. Always. And the servant knows that and turns and prays by grace, please, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to leave the God I love. I feel it. I know it is there in this relationship, in that relationship, in this financial endeavor, in this heart's concern, in this desire to seek my own glory. I know it is there. Bind my wandering heart to thee. This is the servant. He worships God versus those who worship idolatry and make a confession like those who worship the beast. Who can fight against it? Can't beat them, join them is the mark of an outsider. Finally, thirdly, the very last point we have out of this 77-week journey together, the final mark of a servant, as the book would close, would say, it is one who says, come, Lord Jesus. Look at verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride You know who the bride is, the church. The spirit and the bride, the community of servants, they say, come. Let the one who hears about the Lord's return, about his mighty act of filling the earth with the glory of the Lord, let the one who hears that redemptive story, let their hearts say, 
come. Let the one who is thirsty right now, who is hearing the gospel of the Lord, let the one who says, my tongue is dry, I need a drink, but I need the kind that will spring up to life everlasting. I need the Lord himself. Let them come. Let the one who desires take the water of life in this moment without price. This goes back to our very first introductory comment. Why the delay? The Lord is patient. Not wishing any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So he says, if you hear this word, and you desire water, the water of life, that wells up to eternal life, and you're thirsty, you need it, come. Take it without price. It's by grace. This comment of coming for the servant, I trust you can appreciate the desire and the confession to come, Lord Jesus, is a word about your internal compass. Obviously, you're not running around shouting, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, running up and down through friendship and wherever else you live and saying, of course, that's the mark of the servant. I'm going to run around and shout, come, Lord Jesus. I'm going to put all the signs up in my yard. Right? Right? Right, you're recognizing, as is with the portrait of faith, of, of, of water, as is the portrait of the faith who has his robes who, that are washed, so too it speaks of an internal compass. Do you desire the earth to be filled with the glory of the Lord? Or is your home this faded kingdom? Is this enough glory? Is this really your best life then you need a new drink of gla- uh, drink of water you're drinking from a broken cistern don't be wrapped up in your own kingdom building come unto the lord have your internal compass reset and say with the church Come, Lord Jesus, fill the earth with your glory. If, as I close with you, this is my final comment to you this morning, if as I began with you about a word of doubt, I ask you yet again in conclusion, do doubts creep in about the Lord's return? Do they? Will they? I would encourage you on two fronts. In times of difficulty, living life as a servant, awaiting the Lord's return, remember His teaching in the context of speaking about His return Himself in the Gospel of Matthew in the 24th chapter and in the 35th verse. He said this to His disciples. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So the angel says to you, these words of the Lord are trustworthy and true. Put your eggs in that basket and say, come and fill the earth with the glory of the Lord.
Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the book of Revelation and its ability to reset our compass in all of the beautiful images and all of the apocalyptic work and reading about the Lord's return and the difficulties of this current age as it is passing away. There is a word yet again to our hearts that are troubled. Do not be troubled. I have overcome the world. I know that it's difficult as a servant, but I am strengthening you by grace. All that is necessary will be provided to you. So be faithful. Let the church be filled with the vision of the earth being filled with the glory of the Lord. What a day that will be. What an experience of translation that will be for all of us. And yet there is also a word to the outsiders. You will come and there will be recompense. Let them hear the word of the Lord this moment. Look to Christ and be saved. Having you deal with all of their punishment on the cross. Rising after you had been buried three days later. And offering salvation to all who would come. So Lord, I pray if there is one here who is thirsty, let them drink from the water of life without price by calling upon the name of Christ. There is no other name given whereby one can be saved. I thank you for Christ, his atoning work, and the powerful meal that we're about to eat in remembrance and sharing in his death, proclaiming it until he comes. So with the church, I trust with our hearts being one, we do say, come, Lord Jesus, fill the earth with your glory. In Christ's name I do pray, amen.